0: if you're like me, that jingle's going to haunt you tonight. Like, dun, 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 dun. That was great. Um, well, good morning. We are going to be, um, I'm going to do a series um, over the next three Sundays, beginning today, um, and I'm going to entitle it, What Child is This? And so we're going to, um, um, look at the significance of Jesus and his birth. Um, but um, how many of you guys like, enjoy Christmas season? Some of us call it Christmas season or Advent. Uh, when we have our, our Advent service, we walk through the origin of that and we that's um, in a couple of Wednesday nights. I would encourage you to uh, come out if you're not aware of that. Advent means the coming. And uh, for decades, Christians have focused on the first coming of jesus um, in this season and they they got all kinds of traditions and whatnot but um we'll be focusing on his his birth um in all of our sunday studies could i have the ac turned off up here sorry so we're gonna look at who came why did he come the significance of the events surrounding his coming and then the results of uh, his coming. So let's, let's pray. Lord, we ask that um, as we enter into this um, series and we focus on you, um, there's so many things pulling at us this time of year and so many things that disrupt our life, like rain and shopping and parties and uh, man, may you just draw our hearts and draw our attention, uh, Holy Spirit, with, this, with your word. And um, may we just be built up in our faith. And may many even that we invite here and online um, come to know you as their personal Lord and Savior um, as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I, I had somebody send me a couple of jokes, but I read one. I thought I would start off with this. Um, uh, it says, and I quote, While a man had gone out driving to do some Christmas shopping, his wife had been watching TV. She heard the announcer say, Be careful and watch driving on I-45, which was the route he would be taking today. There's a motorist driving the wrong way. So his wife, of course, got excited got on the phone with him to warn him, and his reply was, you tell me. I'm there now, and there are hundreds of them here heading my way. I <laughs> just thought I would start off with that. Um, I, I have some friends that have like some, I have one of those twisted sense of humors and whatnot, and <clears throat> they were talking about how kids this time of year get a little bit rambunctious and a little out of control, all the sugar, all the hype, and all of that. And um, they sent me this thing that said that they, they, uh, they learned it's a family tradition now, and they pass it on to their kids and whatnot. But they learned that the best way to keep your kids in line during the Christmas season, leading up to Christmas, is um, you wrap a bunch of presents uh, under the tree, but you don't have anything in the presents. They're just empty boxes. And when they get out of line, you threaten them and you say, uh, If you get out of line, we're going to throw another one of these into the fireplace. So <laughs> I thought that was really classic. I thought that would work. <laughs> I, 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 laugh, I, I shouldn't have said that because I will laugh about that as I'm teaching now, but picturing uh, all of that. But who came? In the Old Testament, um, we see God's people over the centuries as they were postured as his people, and they were were waiting for their Messiah. All through the Old Testament, there was a focus on the Messiah and the hope that he would bring. And as God saw their desire, he would inspire men like like Isaiah and Jeremiah to pin down incredible words of hope related to this coming Messiah. Around 740 B.C., God inspired the prophet Isaiah to pin down Isaiah 9, 2 through 4. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of the shadow of death, or deep darkness, a light is going to shine. Amen. Amen. At a time where God's people were living in darkness, God pins down some very timely words of hope. He was letting them know that he was aware of them, he was aware of their plight, that he had not forgotten them, and that he had an incredible plan for them. Matthew would apply this this passage in Isaiah to Jesus when he began his ministry in Matthew chapter 4 there, 13 through 17, Jesus came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen now, a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and, and, and the shadow of death, light has dawned. And he says, from that point on, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in that, that Isaiah chapter 9 passage in verse 3, I, Isaiah made it clear that this would be God's doing. You, you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They, have, they, they rejoice before you. You've done this according to joy of the harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So this, this light that would come in reference to the Messiah and the hope that he would bring, it's God's doing. It's going to be a supernatural work of God. God will lead the people from spiritual darkness into light in reference to the Messiah. The light will increase their joy, like the joy at harvest time or the joy after winning a battle and you're dividing up the spoils. Then in verse four, for for you have broken the yoke of, of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. So the idea is when this light impacts anyone, anybody shrouded in darkness, it will be like taking a burden off of their back it's at that time we move into one of the more popular passages of the old testament here found in isaiah chapter 9 this is god's response to the fall and everything that that sin had brought into the world which darkness basically summarizes sin brought consequences the Emotional consequences, mental consequences, physical consequences, spiritual and eternal consequences. And so these, these next couple of verses tell us what God did in response to that as it related to the coming Messiah, the light and the hope that He would bring. Verse 6 For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful and Counselor, Counselor and Mighty God and Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. Now, what does it say? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We don't have time to develop that whole passage today, but we're going to get back to it in our further studies. But a child is born. Isaiah now, in in, in verse 6 and 7, is is speaking of that, that first Christmas, the incarnation where God will take on flesh. This tells us that the Messiah will be physically born into The world, that he would be born into this specific nation, the nation of Israel, unto us, Isaiah says, as one of the covenant people. And so Isaiah starts off with this whole idea that a child was to be born. That speaks of and it emphasizes the humanity. He is not coming into this world as an angel. He is not introduced as a a grown man. He is not going to be marched on the scene in some lavish, over elaborate parade, some big military entourage kind of setting. No, he is going to be born as a little baby. But he is also a son that is given. The the, the child, this this whole idea that, that, that he talks about, a child is born, speaking of his humanity. Then a son, of course, is given, speaking of His his deity. Jesus was and is the very Son of God. He took on flesh. He was fully man. And he was fully God at the same time. So I want to drill in on this when we talk about what child is this. I want to drill in on this by looking at um, the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. So turn your Bibles over there. We're going to spend a little bit of most of our time, remaining time, here in this passage. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The writer of Hebrews says, and I quote, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son Whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than than they so one of the significant things about the birth of jesus christ is that it showed the extreme lengths to which god was prepared to go in order to communicate with us he god was willing to be born himself as a human baby thus opening himself up to all of the pain and all of the suffering of our human experience. Such is God's love for us. And the writer says, well, let's start here. Let's let's look back at who God was as it related to him communicating to us over time. God who at various times and in various ways in times past, he he spoke to us by the fathers or by the prophets. Just like we saw God do through Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9. God speaks to us. The God who has always been and the God who is and the God who forever will be, he speaks to us. What a wonderful thought that is. That God speaks to us, it, it implies amazing grace when you really think about who we are. When God speaks, he speaks to the world, to saint and sinner alike, to those who follow him and those who reject him alike. God speaks. In the days of Noah, God spoke the perfect words that a God-rejecting world would need to hear in order to sustain their lives and spare them from judgment. He continued to speak in the face of their rejection for 120 years. We have a hard time living up to God's standards of such Grace. When we are rejected or offended, we say, I'm not speaking to that person. You hear people define a strained relationship. When people ask them about that strained relationship, we are no longer on speaking terms, is a term that we will use to define a strained relationship. Aren't we glad that God hasn't done that? We would be justified. Or he would be justified, excuse me, in doing so, because we are sinners. And we don't deserve to be spoken to, yet he speaks. And that he speaks specifically to each need, to each generation, to each era, to each circumstance means that he is ever aware and ever near. It means he's come down to our level to reveal himself and make himself known. What a wonderful truth this is, that our God is here and our God is not silent. He speaks. In these verses, we see a contrast between how God spoke in times past and when the writer of Hebrews is now penning these words down, in contrast to now how God has spoken presently. To some, he spoke to, and, and to some he spoke through, as he looks, first of all, into the past. God spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden, as he fellowship with, with them. God spoke to Noah as he gave him instruction as to the judgment that would come and as he gave him the detailed instruction as to what kind of boat he would need to build. God appeared to Abraham in, in human form there in, and, 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 and to Jacob as an angel and God spoke to both of them. In Exodus 19, verse 16, God spoke to his people at Sinai in thunder and lightning lightning. And with the voice of a trumpet, whew, and they trembled. That same God who speaks spoke. When he spoke to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 11 through 12, there in Hira, he spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice. He's like, go out, stand on that mountain. Behold, the Lord passed by and, There was a great and strong wind that tore into the mountains and broke the rocks into the pieces. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after that, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a still, small voice. God spoke to Moses through a burning bush. God spoke to Ezekiel in visions. God spoke to Daniel, and and he spoke to him through dreams. God spoke to Balaam through a donkey. God spoke to his people and through his people. Amos gives us direct oracles of God. Malachi uses questions and answers that represent the heart of God, from the very throne of God. Ezekiel performed these amazing miracles that had just rich symbolic meaning as God spoke through those miracles. Haggai preached sermons. Zechariah, mysterious signs, but God would speak. So God spoke to his people by visions and, and dreams and, and, and riddles, sometimes face to face. He spoke to them through his law, through his commands, through his warnings, through parables, through signs, through wonders, through sermons, through poetry and prophecy. All of this creative and varied communication dramatically demonstrated God's loving desire to communicate with his people. His communication was never boring. It was never inexplicable. It was never irrelevant. It was always revealing more of God and his ways. It was always in continuity with the previous words that God had been saying. It was always progressive and adequate to the time. It was always what people needed to hear. It was always suited for the situation. And his communication quickened and empowered people to step out in faith in unimaginable ways. Abraham would lead his family to an unknown land, a land that would be flowing with milk and honey, a, a land where God would multiply his descendants more than the stars of the heaven because God spoke to him and Abraham believed and stepped out in faith. Moses would stand up before Pharaoh 10 times because God would stand up before Moses and speak to Moses and give direction to Moses as to what he was to say to Pharaoh. And he stepped out in faith as a result. Noah, again, as we refer to, would spend 120 years building a 450-foot boat because God spoke to him about coming judgment. And he believed that. And he began to build. Joseph would transition from one of Jacob's youngest sons, be sold into slavery, and rise to second in command to Pharaoh over all of Egypt because God would speak to him in dreams. A young shepherd boy would be used to take down a giant by the name of Goliath in the valley of Elah. He would find himself living in a place of prominence with the king of Israel. He himself be be raised to that very position one day because he was a man that that sought after God. He was after God's heart. He listened to God. God spoke to David and, and, and his life was blessed in amazing ways as a result. Again, Daniel, he achieved and maintained mighty, massive integrity and power and influence in Babylon because God would speak to him. When God spoke, it was always revealing more of God's nature, more of God's will, more of God's plan. And when it was God's will for his people to know his way, he was clear. He would begin with Moses by saying, this is how they're going to worship me. This is how they're going to follow me. Come up here. And Moses would come up to Mount Sinai, and God would speak to him, and he would say, it's time to pen these words down. And Moses would come down with the words of God, the Ten Commandments. Later on, in the history of Israel, people would deviate from from God's will, from God's commands. And God would then speak through men like Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah to call them back, to warn them and to call them back to him and his ways. As God continued to speak, again, it was always progressive. Progressive. It was always in line with what he had previously said. And it was always had this like future lean to it. That one day God would speak clearer. That one day God would speak about something more full, more complete. No longer in varied ways or diverse ways. And so from this passage here, we learn The Old Testament is a story in need of a conclusion. It's all moving forward towards the Messiah and the hope that he would bring. Every good story needs a conclusion. And this story, God's story, his story, history, is moving forward to the conclusion that is a person, which is a Messiah. It's a messianic conclusion. And so in verse 2, in these last days. So there's a transition. He was speaking this way. And it was all forward-moving, forward-leaning, drawing a future conclusion. But now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In these last days, what does that mean? Well, part of the prophet's message was that there was A coming day when a new age would dawn. When God would intervene to save his people once and for all. And again, this would involve God's son. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. When did he do that? Well, nine months after the virgin conceived and bore a son and called his name Emmanuel, just like Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. When the child was born and God's son was given, just like Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. When this child, the eternal ruler, was born in Bethlehem, just like Micah said in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This is the great Christmas announcement. The birth The entrance, the angels, the star, the magi, the crowded inn, the manger, it's all held in this statement. When God no longer spoke to his people through prophets, he in a sense gave the best Christmas present of all in the gift of his very presence by dwelling among us in the person of his son. What a great transition. From the days of promise where God spoke through the prophets. To the days of fulfillment where God has spoken through his son. But in these last days. We're not waiting for the last days to arrive. They have arrived and we are in them right now. Ever since the first Christmas. History again. I always say it as his dash story, God's story. A story that was leaning forward through the prophets. A story that was revealed and progressively moving forward through the prophets. But that story again would not be complete until in these last days God would speak to us by his son. Jesus is the culmination of the story. Jesus is God's final word. Jesus is the highest revelation of God to us. Lori and I, as we raised our girls, we, we both were educators. We homeschooled our girls. And so there was a lot of educating in the Cook household. And when they were, when they were younger, I was the, the kind of guy, whenever I would want to teach them the word and, and whatnot, I would, I would, I'm a teacher. I would sit down and I'd have them maybe memorize the verse. And I would always, now what's that scripture mean to you? And I used a lot of words to kind of you know bring them along. But but I noticed, you know, Lori was a little bit better at this. Now she's here. Lori was so much better at this. Because Lori, she would act it out. Lori would, would she, I'd come and sometimes she'd be on a table, and all of a sudden that table was Noah's Ark. And, and, and she's acting it out, and, and, and the girls began to connect the dots through that picture. When we combine words with something that they can see and touch, the message becomes all that more Convincing. God's message to us throughout the Old Testament, a message that moves forward, that leans forward, it's progressive. It just kind of all correlates with what he's been saying, but it's moving towards a completed thing that he is going to say. That whole message, as we look at it, was suited for that time. But when we come to the climax of his message... He miraculously produces His Son that can be seen and touched, perfectly suited for that time, perfectly suited for our situation. Galatians 4, 4, and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons." I love how the author drills in on who this son is. What child is this? He is the very son of God, he says. Not merely a man called God. No, Jesus Christ is God. That description could never be applied to any other mortal man. As prophesied through David in Second Samuel 7, verses 12 through 14. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, so from your line, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Proverbs 30, verse 4. I love this verse. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment, obviously reference to God, over and over? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? I love the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 2, verse 7. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What child is this? He is the son of God. Also, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Just as children are the heirs of... Their parents. So too, Jesus, the Son of God, is the heir of everything that belongs to the Father, and everything belongs to the Father. So Jesus is therefore the heir not of many things, but he is the heir of all things. This is what the psalmist was saying in that messianic psalm, Psalm two seven through eight, where it says, "I, I will tell you the decree." The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. But then it says, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And because we who believe in Jesus are united to him through spiritual regeneration and by virtue of being adopted into his family, we are fellow heirs with Christ. In Romans 8, 16 through 17, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So is this child? What child is this? He's the Son of God. He's the heir of all things. And He also, through whom also He made the world. In other words, Bethlehem was not the real beginning for this little baby. When we have this, what child is this? (laughs) He was present and active at the creation of the universe. In John chapter 1, 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In other words, the Father created all things through the Son and for the Son, and so everything in existence finds its ultimate meaning and purpose in the Son. What child is this? He is the Son of God, the heir of all things, the creator of all things. Who, in verse 3 as well, who, being in the brightness of His glory, this is a reference to um, a Hebrew word called Shekinah. Shekinah means to To, to dwell. It was the the Shekinah glory of God that that filled Solomon's temple on the dedication day in the form of a cloud in 1 Kings chapter 8. The pillar of cloud by day and the the pillar of fire by night that went before Israel in, in the wilderness there in Exodus chapter 13 was the Shekinah glory of God. It was the Shekinah glory of God that passed by Moses as God covered him in the cleft of the rock so that Moses only saw the afterglow there in Exodus chapter 33. A few hundred years later, on Mount Hermon, Jesus would be there with Peter, James, and John, and he would be transformed before them. And he just basically allowed the glory, the Shekinah, to radiate through his whole being. The mountaintop became the holy of holies cloud was covered there. And from the heavens, the Father would just echo out as deity just emanated from Jesus. And the disciples were getting their minds blown, Peter, James, and John, echoing now from the heavens. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. As hot and as brilliant as the sun is in our solar system, we would never feel or enjoy its light, its heat, its warmth, or its life that it brings without the radiating beams that come from the sun. You can't detach the beams from the sun. And so it is with Jesus, the Son of God. He is the radiance, the shining forth, the brightness and the blazing center of the glory of God. In John 1, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared or revealed Him. What child is this? Well, He's also the expressed image of His person. That carries the idea of the exact imprint. We get our English word character from this particular word, and it, it refers to an image. <clears throat> Literally, Jesus is the exact representation of the very substance of God. Jesus is God made visible for us. Jesus is, in fact, God with a human face, that baby in the manger. Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation is what Paul was saying there. In Colossians 2, verse 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Again, this is one of the most powerful statements in the New Testament of Christ's deity. Another translation of the Greek says, in Jesus dwells permanently all the fullness of deity in bodily form. In him dwells all the fullness of deity, not part of it. Fullness is the Greek word plerma. It means the sum total of all that God is, of all that God has ever done, his his being, his attributes. The word dwells in the Greek means to settle down, to be at home at. It's in the present tense, which means that the essence of deity continually forever has been, is, and forever will be abiding at home in Christ. Jesus has been, is, and forever will be fully God. What child is this? John 1:1. In the beginning was the Word. That word in the Greek is logos. What does logos mean? The expression of who God is. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Then he would say in verse 14 of John chapter 1, And the word, the same logos, the expression of who God is, became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And and, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus said to Philip in John chapter 14, verse 9, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Why do you say Why do you say, show us the Father? John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus would say, I and my Father are one. In the Greek, it's one and the same person. And because Jews were there and he was claiming to be God, they would take up stones to to stone him, to kill him. And Jesus would then say, you know, many works I have shown, you know, in front of you. I've done many things in front of you, like good things. And, 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 and all of these are from my Father. For which work will you stone me? And they said, it's not for the good work that we've wanting to pick up these stones and stone you, but it's blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. We believe you're a man, but you're running around doing things that only God can do and claiming to be God. At the same time, Jesus was fully God, he was fully man. Paul said and. 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. He was born a baby, but he would grow up, grow up in wisdom and stature. He would have hunger pains. He would eat. He would get tired. He would sleep. His heart would break. He would weep. Matthew 1, 23, speaking of Jesus' birth, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Paul would say in Philippians 2, 7, that speaking of Jesus taking on flesh, he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of a man, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Disciples were blown away when this really sank in. And they really began to believe this. What child is this? He's God. After his resurrection, remember he he said to Thomas in John chapter 20, 27 and 28, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas then, once he saw Jesus raised from the dead and put his hands in his wounds, said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. The dots were connected. What child is this? He's also credited here of upholding all things by the word of his power. Paul said the same thing about Jesus in Colossians 1:16 and 17. There all things were created through Him and for Him. But then in verse 17, and He is before all things. He's eternal. And in Him all things consist. He not only is the heir of all things and the creator of all things, but He sustains and upholds and supports and maintains all things. Teaching through Colossians 1, I always love going through that part of the the scripture for people who are just kind of learning what that means. That that Jesus created all things, he's before all things, and in him all things consist like he's holding it all together. Years ago, Columns, he came up with a law. the, The Columns Law of electricity what does that law state that law states that like charges repel it's the whole idea of trying to push two magnets that have positive sides towards one another no. naturally they want to they want to pull apart and and what what Colum discovered is that at the nucleus of an atom if you break down the atom that's the deal and everything that we, we see, are our own molecular structure, our cells, we are made up of these, of these atoms. And so all of these scientists, when they realize that, that light charges repel, they scratch their head and they're like, what's holding it all together? What in the world is holding it all together? Now some of you think you're holding it all together. You're not even holding nothing together. You're being held together. In the 70s, there were some scientists that drilled in and, and with more sophisticated microscopes and whatnot, they began to take a term. They, just, they used to just call it atomic glue. There's some sort of atomic glue. With everything should be just like charges repel. We should not be held together. The world should be not held together. The universe shouldn't be held together. There's just this atomic glue. But they, they got some more sophisticated microscopes and they, they drilled in and the molecular structure of an atom and went deeper and deeper, a deeper dive. And they found this stuff that they would label laminin. Laminin. And under the microscope, if you looked at that, that molecular structure of what holds our cells together, it's in the shape of a crop. I like sermonizing these things. I like going, well, God definitely wants to be seen in his creation, amen? Whether you look up at the heavens and go, whoa, that declares the glory of God, or whether we get, he gives us the ability to scientifically dive in deep and deep and deep to the point where we're looking at the most minuscule, microscopic parts of his creation, and there, That what holds everything together is somehow in the shape of a cross. just kind of boggles my mind. One day, he who holds it all together is going to let go. 2 Peter chapter 3. And it's all going to be, the elements are going to burn with fire, at least the creation. And I like that in verse... Eleven of 2 Peter chapter 3. Therefore, since all of these things are going to be dissolved, in the Greek, lehud, loosened. What manner of persons ought we to be in holy conduct in godliness? Well, what child is this? He would grow up the creator of all, the sustainer of all. And in verse 3, he had by himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. The writer here, in examining what child is this, takes us through all the universe, then lands us on planet Earth, It brings our attention to the very purpose of what child of this is this, being born on this planet. It's the purification, the redemption, the salvation of mankind. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down. I've... Taught on this many times. That just it, it means that he's done. <laughs> Remember Jesus on the cross? He says, to Telestine, it's finished. There's nothing more that can be added. Your salvation, your forgiveness, your eternal life in heaven with me. That is my work. It is not your work. And I've now completed it on the cross. It is finished. And there would be that time when it would be complete and it would be a visible statement when he sits down at the right hand of the Father. I want to close with just a couple of, of thoughts. What child is this? Question mark. We've learned a lot this morning. We're just the tip of the iceberg. But what if this child... Had not come. When we think through these implications, we see this season in a brand new light. We had Christmas communion last Wednesday night, and I I posed this question to everybody in the room after we had worshiped together and after we went through some scriptures. If if Jesus had not died on the cross, if we were not born again, if we were not made new, new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if we were not adopted into the same family, if we were not the makeup of God's body with Jesus being the head, if we were not given God's word as God's people and assisted by his spirit that indwells us, what would be the makeup of this room? What would we have in common in this room? What would get us to, like, even want to be here if this child did not come? When we think about those implications, we see this season. That's why I wanted to teach this right now. We see this season in a whole new light. If there were no first Christmas, what child is this? We could not know God. If there were no first Christmas, what child is this? We could not be forgiven. If Jesus had not come into the world, there would be no such thing as forgiveness of sins. If Jesus had not come, we would not be forgiven and we would still be dead in our sins, subject to the penalty of our sin and in grip as it relates to the power of sin. Jesus was born into humanity to show us that Christianity was not merely a principle, but it was about a person. Jesus was not an ideal of God or a picture of God, he was and is God in human form. That's what Charles Wesley captured in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Veiled in flesh, he would say. The Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. You see, God gave us his son, and then his son gave us God. If Christmas did not come, then we would not have been understood to the decree that God understands us. The writer of Hebrews would go on to say in chapter 4 about Jesus referred to him as a high priest. We don't have a high priest that cannot empathize or sympathize with us in our weaknesses. But he was in all points, tempted as we are, yet without sin. If Christmas did not come, then we would have no hope. But in a world that is filled with war and sickness and death and division. And I can go down that list, but I don't want to leave you on a bummer note. In that world, Jesus is our hope. In a world where there's all kinds of wars, not just military wars, but wars, Jesus is peace. In a world with hatred and violence, he came. How does God look at hatred? And violence. What's the character of God? What's the view of God? What's the heart of God towards hatred and violence? Well, we just look at God as He walked on the earth. And He loved. And He forgave. In a world that was guilt ridden by sin, He offered forgiveness. In a world of death, everyone's going to die. He offered life spiritual life now, abundant life now, and life beyond the grave. What child is this? It's the child that brings hope to a hopeless world. And he has offered us this gift of salvation because he loves us. He's offered us his hope because he wants to help us. But as you know, we need to receive this gift. What child is this? Jesus. Prayerfully, He's your Savior, and if He's not, receive Him now. Let's pray. Father, we thank You again for the opportunity to settle down as a church and focus in this season, moving forward towards our celebration Christmas Eve, Christmas Day this year, to just open your word and get our heart and our focus right. And for any here, Lord, or online that have never given their life to you, never accepted your gift, your free gift of salvation, I pray that right now in these closing moments, they would do just that. That's you. I would encourage you to pray to God, to talk to God, to come to Him on His terms right now and just say, thank you God for revealing yourself to me. Thank you for speaking to me. Thank you for speaking to my situation because I'm a sinner and I need salvation. So tell Jesus now, I believe that you're God. I believe that you died on the cross for me. You rose from the dead for me. And ask him into your life. Just say, Jesus, come into my life. Be my Lord and Savior. Ask him to fill you with his spirit. And in your way, you close out that prayer and continue talking to him and and, and give your life to him. Lord, we... We just pray a blessing upon this church in this season that you'd pour out your spirit, that you would work through our busyness and be on the throne of our heart, be on the throne of our mind, be on the throne of our calendars, be on the throne of our pocketbooks, be on the throne of all of the gatherings that we're going to have. May this be a season where we're helping people see and understand what child is this? We praise you. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus.